Hello, and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, number 24, we'll be talking to Alan Armstrong. Alan has been an activist on the left in Scotland since the late 1960s. He was a member of the International Socialists, later the Socialist Workers' Party, during the 1970s, and was a convener of Scottish rank-and-file teachers, leaving the SWP when it sought to dissolve the latter group. As a part of the Red Republicans, he was involved in the foundation of the Scottish Socialist Alliance, which became the Scottish Socialist Party. Within the SSP, he was part of the Republican Communist Network, which disaffiliated from the SSP in 2012. With the RCN, Alan is active in the Radical Independence Campaign and the recently formed Republican Socialist Platform. Along with several articles, Alan has published two books, From David to Connolly and The Ghost of James Connolly. So we'll discuss Alan's experiences and political trajectory in left activism in Scotland, from socialist groups as a student in Aberdeen in the 1960s to the Contemporary Republican Communist Forum, the politics of republicanism and internationalism from below, and linking the movements in Scotland, Ireland and across these islands, his perspective on Scottish independence and the 2014 referendum, and the current political landscape. You'll find Alan's website, Internationalism from Below, at infobel.com. That's I-N-T-F-R-O-B-E-L.com. We've included a link in the episode notes, um, as well as links to some articles by Alan which outline his political perspective. You'll find the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. Uh, we're always glad to get feedback. You can contact us via the website by emailing contact at leftarchive.ie or find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. Thanks to Alan for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you for listening. Well, first, uh, thanks very much, Alan, for coming on the podcast. Maybe to start, could you give us an outline of your own political activism and what what brought you into political activity? Uh, I didn't become active at all till 1968. I was born in uh, 1949 in Edinburgh. And uh, a year year later, my father, who was from Tyneside and and, uh, worked in the shipyards, moved there from... So from there, from 1950 to 1963, then came back to Edinburgh again. But essentially, my parents were apolitical. So I really was not involved or had any interest in politics till I went to Aberdeen University in 1967. And even then, the first term, but then 1968 came and it just literally changed the world. And I remember going along to some meetings. There was a a revolutionary student's uh, Socialist uh, Federation at the university. I went to went along to some of their meetings, and I particularly the first conscious meeting I remember is where somebody just a big couple of hundred people in the room where somebody just burst in the door and came to speak. He'd just come back from Paris and gave a report of his experiences in Paris, and that was very much the sort of atmosphere in which brought me to politics. So I was 18 going on 19 before I had much interest in politics at all. But I was very briefly and thankfully very briefly uh, went, uh, involved in an organization which I, I think it had in Irish called the Socialist Labour League, a, a very hard Trotskyist organization. In its young sources, not directly in, in that, but uh, the way it conducted itself uh, was uh, was pretty brutal. Uh, I, I left, that could have pissed me off of politics altogether, but in the broader context of what was going on, you know, it didn't. And I ended up myself joining the uh, RSS at the university. And I ended up as the chair of that, mainly because I wasn't in any other political organization. 
There were two main political organizations in the university at that time, the International Socialists and a group called Solidarity. Solidarity was based on the thing of Pierre Cardin, um, uh, which is uh, a, a sort of, a, a sort of semi-anarchistic, but, but would still take be Marxist organizers. These were both influential. And, you know, as anywhere, that's something still the case today, we, the context of the 60s and early 70s, the, any small organization, its prime enemy was the nearest organization to it. <laughs> and so yeah. you know, the, the sectarianism of these, uh, the, I was made chair because I wasn't in either of these organizations. So that's that was my introduction to politics. It was also my uh, the the next thing I vividly remember was uh, the RSF. This is before I became chair. Uh, organized a, a meeting. Uh, well, it actually was organized through a university body, which the RSF took over, called the Debater. This was a very well financed official body that had a very large budget. Before that. Its meetings have been formal debates with people in, you know, in suits and things like that. But it was actually, it actually had an AGM, and you go and go. The RSF went along there, took it over, and so had an unbelievable budget. So, uh, so it was able to invite speakers, and it was Bernadette Devlin then who was invited across to speak, uh, to debate against a young unionist. Uh, I've forgotten his name. Uh, debate against a young unionist, and I mean. She blew, she blew me away. I mean, she, it was just un, unbelievable. Uh, so, you know, that, that is one, one, of my, uh, one of my early memories. I had been in Ireland before that. I was first in Ireland with a friend when I still lived down in Tyneside. Um, uh, no, actually it wasn't. It was, uh, I hadn't moved back to Edinburgh, but my friend was from Tyneside. I did a two, uh, we went on a tour in 1964. Bought a, bought, a, uh, bought a tick combined CIE bus and rail ticket. However, we discovered a lot of Ireland is not covered by either of these things. So we did a hell of a lot of hitchhiking, but also in Northern Ireland, we had to do hitchhiking because the price of bus fares was so expensive in Northern Ireland. So I was there. But I had really little idea about, even though I was traveling around Ireland, it seemed I was stepping back into the past. Had a very strong feeling of stepping back into the past, particularly in uh, particularly in this in, in this in the south. But I remember I got a lift from Warren. I'd been, we'd been staying in Newcastle Youth Hustle and climbed Sleeve Donna. The next day, mm. got a lift from uh, Warren Point actually to Wicklow. It's quite a quite a, a lift. Yeah. But I don't mm. even remember crossing the border. I must have obviously there were points that, but coming back when I had to cross the border, we're in Donegal and I hitched. Actually, managed to hitch amazingly. A bus returning to depot from uh, Donegal to uh, to Derry. Uh, so we hitched this very early in the morning, yeah. and the driver looked at us and said, uh, "You know, so he asked us where we want to go. And we, oh, you want to go all the way to Derry? You're crossing the border." And we said yes. And he wasn't. He obviously wasn't keen to take people across across the border. But then he you know, looked at us. He, he could see we had nothing to do. You know, Whatever we were, we weren't young clandestine Republicans trying to get in that. We had, you know, had our accents. So he took us. That was the only time, that was one of the indications of then, you know, Ireland, well, something different about Ireland. The other thing is we stayed at the youth hostel in Cape Clear Island yeah. and went to a Cayley, uh, went to a Cayley there, uh, a great night out. And there was, there was lottery tickets 
they got this uh, so we both us bought a lottery ticket and then on the lottery ticket it had what we read didn't even, couldn't even something called sin fine uh, <laughs> hadn't a clue what that was and i did remember the name but it wasn't i did higher history a few years later where actually Ireland was part of the higher history course that the Sinn Féin, I became somewhat aware of it. But really, my first visit to Ireland passed, you know, the significance of Ireland in any political sense really passed over me altogether. It wasn't till Bernadette Devlin, you know, that I made the reconnection there. Uh, it really is from that point that Ireland became, you know, not, not just because of politically, I just love it. It's a beautiful island. I do, you know, I've, you know, I've climbed all the 3,000 plus hills, lots of the other ones as well, trying to visit as many of the islands as I can from Toria and the Cape Clearing. Uh, you know, and uh, so I've, you know, I, I, I like Ireland as a place, one of my favorite places to visit, but I've also got more engaged you know, with the politics over and the people over the years that I have got to know and come, come from very different backgrounds, you know, Colm Bretnack, but uh, other. An person I got to know from an early time, somebody called Daisy Mules, who's quite prominent in Sinn Féin, but she she was over in she was she was over in Edinburgh uh, before the before the hunger strikes. Was a teacher in Edinburgh and worked in this was in the rank and file teacher group. Very 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 friendly with her. And then when she saw things were hotting up in Ireland, she went back to move into Derry. So I've kept in contact with uh, Daisy ever since, often stay with her in, in Derry and she's in fame. But I've got people from very different friends with her. Uh, um, I came to know some of the people in uh, Socialist Democracy. John McAnulty came across to speak at an SSP meeting. So I know John fairly well, whenever I'm in Belfast, I will have a drink, uh, drink with him. I also went down to a couple of their weekend schools down in the Wicklow Mountains, where I got to know Kevin Keating and Anne Conway uh, I mean, Kevin died sadly last last year, and I stayed with them before we went to the other person I got to know uh, pretty well was Raina, Raina uh, Conroe Lyser, who I also have stay, have stayed with and spoke at meetings over here with. And more recently, I got to know uh, Tommy Mc, uh, uh, Tommy McKeany, you know, the ex the ex public mm. uh, um, right now involved in the Independent Workers uh, Union, and also a close contact with him, uh, Paul Stewart. Who is also you know, ex from an ex Trotskyist background, he comes from a very, very Protestant uh, council scheme in uh, in, Belf in Belfast. I forgot his name, but you know is is now very closely. You know, it, it would be a very solid socialist Republican. So these are people I have got to know in Ireland over the years, and I am still in uh, regular contact with. Obviously, apart from sadly uh, Kevin. On the grounds, your activism in college, in third level. How did that manifest itself? Well, my activism in college, the RSSF, uh, um, the, as well as these two political organisations, mentioned Solidarity and IS, there was a strong streak of anarchism in them. So there's always tension there. Yeah. I, there was some, if there was any common ground between IS and, the, and uh, Solidarity, it was the need to you know, work with the working class. And we, you know, produce pamphlets about disputes. There was a, a, a set of paper mills in Aberdeen, uh, called Moogie Moss paper mills. There were strikes there, so we we uh, took uh, took leaflets uh, took leaflets uh, along there, and also there was a, there was the, the National Post Office workers' strike, so we were involved in that. So we saw 
that is important. Although all the time, I tell you, one of the biggest issues was the women's movement. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of activism. There were pubs in Aberdeen that would not let women in. So, you know, we, so we, uh, we had a, a very strong group of, uh, uh, of women, you know, went along literally and occupied these pubs. You know, they said, oh, we don't have women's toilets or things like that. So, but that was, a, you know, and just the general discussion on, you know, sexual politics was a huge part as well. So that, that was shared you know, from anarchism to, really was, you know, it was, it was, it was quite an, an interesting time first as well, beginnings of people being aware of gay, well, I'm from school, um, I had a couple of gay friends and actual, but uh, it was, you know, that was, that was still something at the time when, you know, we, their only contact, if you like, with a wider, was listening to a, pro, a program on BBC called Beyond the Horn, which had a couple of, you know, gay people, but it was a comedy program, you know, so in, in some sense it performed a almost similar function in British society to something like the black and white minstrel show did for, you know, in relating to yeah. black people. So, so, but you know, the, the, then, you know, you had Stonewall, you had all of these things. So it was, a, you know, that period was a vibrant time to live in, but we straddled, politics straddled the thing. The particular thing was that it was, you know, there was this interest in the working class struggles, which because of my own family, my father having been in the shipyards, although I'd say, oh, not political, you know, mm. to find actually, oh, you know, workers have a real role, you know, in well, and at the university as well. You know, when the RSF took over the debate, it was displacing people who had you were know, wanting to be lawyers or doctors. You know, it was most of the, a lot of these people came from uh, uh, new people came from a working class background. You know, mm. music at that time from the Beatles to others. You know, it was yeah. working class guy. Everything was sort of like a working class breakthrough. And that aspect of politics was. Um, was very important to me at the university. Mm. And I, in Ireland, um, well, uh, well, actually, when I was at university, we, I was in geography as my main subject, and we we had an annual field work, and we went to we went to Dublin when we were in in Ireland. That'd be 1969, I think it was. Maybe 1970. Maybe 1970. Uh, I went to Dublin, and uh, two things I remember was the bus going with the bus from Aberdeen. This time, the border was something you know that was my. Uh, uh, and it was just after the silent water bombing, the, re the reservoir bombing. Mm. And, you know, with a whole lot of us on the bus, and by that, the majority of students were lefties. And I remember a guy called Taff Lewis, you know, the, the RUC came onto the bus, you know, and the, the other thing was they were armed, you know, which was police went armed. And I could, I could see this was serious. But Taff, Taff Lewis showed up. Shouting up to them, hey, the bombs are up here. You know, I thought, fuck, <laughs> you don't joke in this situation. Fortunately, they could see this was an Aberdeen bus. No, no, no. They, 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 you know, they, they let us and flag, flagged us through. By the time I got, we stayed in uh, Trinity uh, when we were down there. There was, and the university was like something from the 1930s. There was waitress service for students in the, and really, I mean, Go, and the more you're around Ireland, the more it seemed like stepping back. It, you know, there was still the old, of course, post boxes as well, mm -hmm. where they painted green, but it really looked like stepping back to Britain you know, of the 1930s. It had that sort of feel about it. Uh, so, you know, so, so, so it certainly wasn't that side of track, but the, the countryside, the mountains were, were, were beautiful. Yeah. And, 
people you met were just amazing, uh, amazing as well. So, you know, that, that deepened the feeling that I had for Ireland for my first, first thing. I didn't go back again till I, by this time I was a teacher, till it'll be 1975. By that time, you know, things, uh, it was Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland were a completely different place. So mm. those, those, those are my first impressions, impressions of, uh, of Ireland. Leaving college, did you then go and join another group, as it were, or was there an evolution there? Yeah, well, definitely was an evolution there. When, when I was at, when I came, came left college in 1972, uh, I moved back to my home city of Edmonds, is where I became a t- uh, teacher. Hmm. And uh, at that time, it was the, the minor strike. And the, uh, so I, I, the group that was by far the most central to organising solidarity in Edinburgh uh, was uh, International Socialists. And uh, that I joined the International Socialists. Uh, on top of that, it had a quite quite it had a group of three people from an Irish from an Irish back an Irish background. A guy called Frankie Drain, Des Lockney, who ended up joining the Labour Party and becoming uh, chair of the Trades Council. And uh, the uh, another person, Andrew McGeeva, who sadly died a few years ago, who was from Fife but from a you know, my, uh, from an, an, an Irish background. So, but they were very involved in it. And Andrew, in particular, his family came from a mining background. So. We went across selling socialist work in one club in Fife, which is called Oakley Miners Club. It was the only miners club in Fife. It's, you could sell socialist work. The Communist Party had Fife absolutely. So the attitude to Trotskyists was, uh, you know, they would have beaten you up. There was no doubt. Really? No, yeah, they would have beaten you up. But this club was the one that wasn't under their control. And, uh, I, I, um, I, Andrew's dad was a member of it, and so we got there. And I remember going one night to sell sources worker. You know, when you did things outside other clubs, Frantis, the factory, that you were lucky if you sold two, three, or four. Yeah, sold 50, 50 yeah. sourceless workers. So it was yeah. that. You know, it was that sort of those heady days that yeah. I was attracted to IS because of its contact, particularly with that section of workers. It was all that's almost an accident. Mm. I could conceive if I'd been in other places, it might have been the IMG. Joined. Yeah. We, I mean, IS was a, became central to setting up something called the Rank and File Teachers Group. Uh, mm-hmm. IMG joined it, and relations between IS and IMG were much better in Scotland than they were in England. Much better in Scotland than they were in England. And IMG was very, very good on Ireland. Much better than IS. I might, mm-hmm. I might, despite IS having uh, people like Ian McCann who was brought across or not was really very good. So. You know, uh, I could, you know, there's a lot about the IMG, particularly it's Irish politics. Mm. It's, it's, it's more advanced positions on women that attracted me. But, yeah. you know, it was the more solid working class base of IS at that time. It had a yeah. very strong group of shop stewards in Glasgow mm. uh, as well, uh, which Paul Foote had cultivated when he'd been a journalist there. That is what attracted, oh, yeah. attracted me IS. But I say, if I'd been somewhere else, I could see it would have been IMG. It was almost... Right. Accident that it was in an IS, but I stayed in. I stayed in it, uh, IS from 1972 through its change over to becoming the SWP till 19, 1982. So I was, in, I was. I never had held any positions within IS. Even I wasn't even on the local committee, except there was a convener of this uh, of the Scottish teachers. 
uh, a group of leaders. That was the only position I held. I was a pretty loyal, mem a pretty loyal member. My only dissent was over Ireland. There were groups inside, factions inside, which were very much, uh, uh, you know, um, far more pro pro IRA, far more uh, pro Palestinian as well at that time. Mm. But they they behaved in what appeared to be a pretty sectarian way. I was never attracted to them. On occasion, when there were votes over things, I might actually vote with them, but I, mm. I never joined them because they, did, they didn't give me, with other, it was other people in IS that gave me contacts to other rank and file groups, to other trade unions, and that was yeah. important to me at that time. So yeah. that's, you know, so, you know, I, when the um, Anti-Nazi League was, uh, was formed, um, I got, you know, I, I got involved in that but I was not particularly happy about the fact that uh, it didn't challenge loyalism in Scotland. Loyalism was a much, you know, had a much more vicious record. Far many deaths that people had, even in Scotland. Never mind if you look at Northern Ireland, than you know, than the National Front or things like that. And but you know, ANL like the SWP leadership liked to use ANL to suggest that fascism was some nasty foreign import. You know, that allowed them to make contacts with left Labour and even, you know, even occasionally uh, Lib Dems and Tories and people like that, you know, to keep out what they call fascism, whereas they turned a total blind eye to uh, what was happening with, with loyalism. Although the, the ISSWP did have, you know, a formally correct position to Ireland, Ireland was kept utterly semi-detached. Occasionally in McCann, somebody might be brought across to speak mm. over, over here. But it came very clear to me during the hunger strikes in particular that, you know, the, the, the I, I, we didn't join any of the solidarity activities at that time. I went mm. along as an individual, still as an SWP member there. And one of the times I was crossing Ireland uh, at height of hunger strikes, I remember going, you know, everywhere he went, the black flags on the lampposts. I remember yeah. going to a big uh, meeting down in all places, Dingle. I was down in Dingle. And the, the, that evening, uh, Christy Moore was playing as well. So I was down there. But I was still, I was always a dissident, but never an organised dissident over, over Ireland. It took something else for me to leave the SWP. And that was... As I've mentioned, I was very uh, closely, uh, very involved in the in the rank and file movement. Mm. Now, as it turned out, uh, I mean, the Scottish rank and file was a genuinely democratic united front. And ING and people from others in there, you know, who had regular meetings. Everything was properly debated. Mm. Uh, although inevitably, uh, uh, SWP won because we had more people than any, anything else. Uh, anybody else? Sometimes, you know, we took on board things that other people were saying, but it, it, but in other with with one exception, that was the building workers group. With one exception, by the nineteen early nineteen eighties, all the other rank and file groups had become just front organisations for the SWP. So when the SWP came up with its, when Tony Cliff came up with its, the the downturn, you know, and decided they closed down the uh, rank and file groups. You know, after the year before he closed down Women's Voice, mm. uh, the um, all of these groups just closed down. Two ex there were two exceptions: the Scottish Rank and File Teacher Group. We had we had a debate. A whole lot of us left uh, you know, left SWP over that decision because mm. it, 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 it was in, in many of our positions in schools depended. We had you know we had a very good shop 
shop stewards is called school reps organization mm. and if you know actually if, if we were abandoned that would become quite exposed if we didn't keep these links together so we you know we continued um, the SWP had a, a full-timer called Chris Bambry who hovered outside the meeting, uh, but that was the, that, you know, that was the and every, every, the SWP were not one person across to closing down rank and file, but lost five or six of the key members for self yeah. The other person, the other group to do that was the building worker group, which was uh, the secretary was a very close friend of mine, Brian Higgins, who just died, as you can gather from his name, of uh, very much a Scot, but from an Irish background from Glasgow. They were organised on the same base, but they had a, a large number of people from a Republican background who were building workers in London and elsewhere yeah. within it. Tony Cliff was sent along to speak to their group, and he got he got a total drubbing at the meeting with only one, uh, you know, with only one SVP agreement. So these two organisations survived. Brian was expelled uh, from the uh, from the SWP because of his defiance of Tony uh, Cliff. So Brian and I remained close friends from that uh, from that time onwards, and we left the SWP. Mm. But back in 1979, we did become part of an organised faction within the SWP. Factions were only allowed to exist for a short period before conferences, Conference, yeah. but we formed. A Republican faction, mainly initially around the issue of Scottish, you know, there was the first Scottish devolution. Yeah. Interestingly, Tony Cliff, when he, you know, when there was a decision to have a, after 1974, when uh, SP made its two breakthroughs, seven and 11 MPs in Parliament, the decision in uh, IS, which soon became SWP, we must debate this. A meeting was held in Glasgow. And Tony Cliff came up. There were three. There were three broad groups: My, myself and another guy, Mick Napier, very much Luxembourgers at that time, abstentionists, no part in either side. The Glasgow, the Glasgow uh, SWP uh, members, the Holly Shop stewards, very much no. You know, you know, you the Britain unites the working class. You know. Uh, 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 an argument that you still hear today, but by much smaller numbers. I, having said that, you know, an interesting little anecdote. You know, these people were very, very Scottish. They were Scottish left units. I'll give you an indication of how Scottish they were. You know, when you know, uh, they won, they won the vote. Tony, I should have mentioned in passing, Tony Cliff was for actually for voting for devolution because yeah, yeah. because the Tories had just Thatcher had just taken over and the Tories were against it. And so the key aspect of Tory was always anti-Toryism. He knew he's on a hiding to nothing. It was going to be difficult. He invited Harry McShane, who was incredibly influential, you know, the person who had been a very close associate with John McLean, to speak mm -hmm. with him. To no avail, even the abstentionists, I think, got more votes than Tony. Tony but I say that it was the same day as England and Scotland were playing, uh, you know, were, 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 were playing at football. I, I think that I think England won five one or five zero. And the same the same shop stewards you're in the pub afterwards, they were crying. They were crying. And you know, some of us say so, 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 well, surely it's solid, solidarity, you should welcome this English victory. <laughs> no, no, no way, you know. They were I mean, 
the Scottish element of the Scottish left youth was important to them. And that's, I think, is, yeah. you know, has been a factor, you know, as the strength of unionism, you know, has faded, the strength of that, the, the fact that people already had a Scottish identity meant quite a lot of people from a Scottish unionist background, and obviously in the lead up to the referendum in 2004, huge swathes of Labour people were yeah. more easily shifted across to know we're not Scottish, British, we're Scottish. So where did you go after the SWP then? I went in the SWP, I say we formed this group called the, uh, the Republican uh, faction, and it organised on each of the conferences. It, it, by that time, I'd been convinced of the need for uh, the need to challenge the UK state. Mm. There's a number of things. I mean, a guy called Steve Freeman was very, uh, very did a lot of rights, a lot of in, on going into Lenin on national self determination. There's mm. also guys. There was a Dave Reed of the RCG who wrote Ireland Britain's Democratic Revolution. Quite a lot of interesting information. So I was looking all around it. And by 1979, you know, started a new devolution in a different way. This, if it was linked to what was happening in Wales, and obviously the much more the, the, the struggle in Ireland, you know, this had the potential for taking on the UK state. Now, devolution wasn't a very strong challenge there, but we said, you know, we should actually begin to organise by linking up these struggles and taking a Republican view. Hmm. Devolution isn't what we want, but actually opens up the possibilities of this debate about the nature of the UK state and yeah. also the possibility of linking up with Ireland. So this is where we made the connection. And Brian and Ireland with Steve Freeman and a number of other people were involved in the uh, Republican uh, faction, which didn't get very far at any of the SWP conferences. Yeah. Uh, but you know, despite these defeats, it wasn't that led to us leaving the SWP. It was when, for Brian and I, the SWP decided it was also going to close down the rank and file groups yeah. that we left. Uh, and Steve Freeman stayed in. We'd, by this, we'd, uh, we formed a group called uh, the Re Re Revolutionary De Democrat Group, which Steve wanted to have us as almost like a secret internal faction of the SWP, whereas we would be part of an external faction. We operated in that sort of way for a, uh, a number of years. I mean, a study of all of our documents at that time would have been a priceless study in small scale, you know, minutiae of left, of left groups. But Brian and I still had our base within our unions, but then came the anti-poll tax cam yeah. campaign. I, be I became the chair of the uh, Lothian Anti-Poll Tax Federation. I also co-chaired the uh, Second Scottish uh, Anti-Poll Tax Federation meeting. Mm. This was this was massive, and it became obvious to Brian and I that actually, you know, orientation towards an SWP that at this point was going nowhere through the downturn. There was actually far bigger things happening outside of that, and so we ended up breaking with Steve Freeman, um, the RDG, the majority of the RDGs, you know, organised. Uh, independently of that, and started to try and make contacts with people in Ireland, Scotland, mm. and to do so in Wales, with a, you know, with a longer term aim of actually hoping to be, and um, you know, an all islands developing an all islands organisation. That didn't happen. We mm. we met, made a whole lot of interesting contacts. We've kept ever since in each one of these countries as a result as a mm. result of, as a result of that. But we didn't have the numerical strength of that. 
and it was interesting, militant, Scottish militant Labour, it learned something from its experience inside the anti-poll tax federation. It learned there was life outside of the Labour Party. Mm. The, in my city of Edinburgh, the, um, the, the local anti-poll tax groups way outnumbered inside the constituency parties of the Labour Party, attracted far more people. It was bigger and they could see that. And so it began their break with uh, the, the, the break with the Labour Party, you can see they can organise outside, and they began to sign candidates and on the strength of the position within winning council seats in Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, so, and so they decided, they said, well, we could do something better, let's organise an alliance, and they invited everybody they could in. The one group they were hostile to were James Conley Society, very hostile to that, because mm. they you know, the their attitude, although they were shifting ground over Scotland, their attitude in Ireland was still, semi, you know, was still pretty unionist. So they missed an opportunity at that particular time to bring in the James Connolly uh, Society, which is a very influential group in Edinburgh, uh, organised some of the best demonstrations in, in Edinburgh, defying, the, at one point, defying the state, the police, mm -hmm. and always defying the loyalists. They weren't brought in, but we acted as a bridge between these but they, by, when they opened up the SSA, everybody else was involved. We joined, um, by that time, become the Red Republicans. We joined and became, if you like, uh, the things we challenged them over was the need for democracy and to give the SSA and the SB, whatever it faults, it was more democratic than any broader left organisation I have ever been in. Mm. And that's false, but more um, organised platforms were allowed and even partially encouraged there's a beginning to appreciation of view that the purpose of platforms wasn't for one group to slag off the other and put them down, but between mutual debate, you might come across with a qualitatively higher viewpoint, but also very slowly, partly because actually there was no longer a, you know, after it begins the peace process, Ireland hadn't become quite, there was even, there was the beginnings of, yeah, maybe we should do some link-ups uh, with, 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 with Ireland. Um, that was mainly done through uh, the, militants organization in Ireland, but there was a preparedness now also in a fight should fade, although still um, the uh, people, P, the, uh, the PUP was also invited across, uh, across. there was an openness. Mm. One of the interesting things was, you know, when the James Conley decided, he decided to have its last march in Edinburgh, the two people inside militant who had been most viciously opposed to republicanism, the, the Connolly Society, who said its only aim is to drive Protestants into the sea. That's what they'd argued at the first one. They came along to the last Connolly march uh, <laughs> as well. So even they had changed. So those, those openings on republicanism on Ireland, all of this was, of course, before uh, the Tommy Sheridan scandal, which yeah. blew the SSP apart. But that's where, if you like, the first... You know, this, the first links between Scotland and again. Brian Higgins, who just died uh, last mm. year, I mean, I, I mean it, it, if you have any link with it, I'd like, you know, I'd like, I'd like people to read the obituary because you've got a lot of my politics, but also joint politics um, of there. It's quite a long one. A shortened version was printed in the Scottish Labour History Society. Mm. It was about Brian. Brian, I'd say his mother came from the Falls Road, but he had lived in Glasgow was blacklist, uh, couldn't get a job in Glasgow, ended up working down in Northampton. But mm. he never got to Ireland. He was a new cat. He never got to Ireland until in the 80s. 
in UCAT. He'd never visit Ireland himself, but he had a very strong Irish Scottish identity. Anybody from that background in Ireland, right? The one thing you would find in, in, in Glasgow were Scots who identified with the problem, but they all were from a Scottish-Irish background, you know. Uh, apart from a few small, IMG would take it further where they were from, from that bank. But their attitude to Scottish independence was uh, totally and utterly hostile. Mm. He said, what? That would, oh, oh, yes. Um, that, the nature of Scotland at that time, that would just be create a second storm on you know, what that attitude to devolution, it would be a second storm on. So there was no support in the Irish Catholic community in Glasgow for that. Brian was the one person, even at that time, who said, you know, look, you look at how the UK state treats, behaves in Ireland. Look at what it's prepared to do. Do not think if there's a challenge in Scotland that it would not turn to similar methods. Yeah. And he, it was possibly the single most important link person, the beginnings of winning people across, first from sections of the left, and then, you know, to this, uh, um, to this view that, you know, actually there is a link between Scotland and I there is a link between Scotland and Ireland. We should see what that particular link is. And mm -hmm. then in the run-up, obviously, the independence referendum, you saw uh, somebody who had, you might, you might know of yeah, George Galloway. Yeah. George Galloway is somebody who very much from Dundee played on his, his Irish Catholic background, played, played that up, was virulently anti-devolution. Uh, yeah. uh, well, not really anti-devolution, anti-independence, independence, using exactly these arguments. And he used to go and speak in Coatbridge, which is a, 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 a very much dominated by Irish uh, Labour Party there, interestingly. In the, in the lead up when he was taking his Just Say No campaign, Just Say No to independence around Scotland. He went to Court Bridge in the lead up to up to, up to that to do his normal thing. He was booed down at that meeting. You right. knew something had changed. And the interesting thing is when the vital vote came, you know, in 2014, it was Western Barnshire and Glasgow, which were the two working class cities that voted. And that could not have happened if it wasn't for the large transfer of Labour supporting uh, yeah. people from a Catholic Irish uh, background who transferred. So from Brian being one individual way back in that, yeah. it slowly partly later through the SSA, SSP, and then even through large sections of the Labour Party, that change took place and those, that link became more apparent. Obviously there was the issue with Sheridan and all the rest of it, which in a sense took that out of the field as a functioning force. I mean, would you agree with that analysis that really, like, it certainly, it certainly impacted very heavily upon the Scottish Socialist Party? I mean, we, in the end, when uh, in, going to the list, I finish off with the Red Republicans going into mm. the uh, SSA, we joined up with other people, actually people who had been federal federal uh, uh, Republicans. They were mainly from D and we formed something called the Republican Communist Network, which is probably yeah. the longest standing organisation. I mean, it still exists in a new form. Yeah, just, yeah. just in the Republican Communist Forum a few months yeah. back. That's been absolutely continuous. And, you know, we stayed inside. We defended the uh, the, the leadership of the SSP against what Sheridan had been, try, you know, had been try, trying to do. And we hoped that once the court cases were, were over, you know, that uh, it would be possible to uh, re-establish the SSP on a, on a better bit. You know, and there was there was actually possibilities of that. I'll give you one very good example of that. 
The next stage, well, once militant, the SNP had left, it became much easier to raise issues like uh, uh, you know, opposition to uh, immigration controls, total opposition to you know, support for the free movement of people. Both of these organizations opposed those in broader groups. But the other thing, uh, Ireland, you know, we organized a couple of uh, Republican socialist conferences, bringing people from Ireland, Scotland. These were sponsored by the SSP. You know, mm. the, uh, so we had, we had uh, one in, Glasgow, in Edinburgh, one down in London, and this is where uh, we first came across Tommy McKeany. He, he mm. was invited across uh, other, other people. They, so they, and so this, was the, the, this, this was the idea of internationalism below was actually now SSP policy. But behind SSP, the, the court case, the long court case was still dominating. Some people became very politically, personally damaged about everything, you know, yeah. for about that. And when finally the, the Sheridan was found to have lied in, in lied in court, instead of saying, "Well, let's go in and see what was what was it about the SSP that allowed that to happen in the first place," mm. you can't just blame Sheridan. Some people had tried to build up this character as uh, so. Let's have this debate. They just weren't prepared to do that, and the SSP has. Uh, since then, has you know, fallen much more back into a sect, it's more, behaves more like militant did before it joined the, the wider movement. It had a short, it had a brief period where during when every left group during the independence referendum made gains and it took on attracted quite a lot of new members. But its style of operation, if any of these members questioned anything, the leadership did, they were targeted, uh, either left or or put it out. So it's format. So that we left the SSP in 2011 at, you know, at the time, a bit like in the situation way back in the poll tax days when, uh, when you know when the old RCN had a decision to make: do we stay in, inside the SS the SWP, which is going nowhere when there's all these things happening? Well, it was become clear in Scottish independence was going to be a major issue. So we said there's far more people interested on the left interested in this as they were mm. in the poll tax thing than are interested in the SS, SSP or any of the other organisations. Let us get involved in that. And that's where we became one of the contributory groups to what became the, the, the left wing of the independence movement, the radical independence campaign. Although, again, it wasn't us that initiated. It wasn't us that initiated one of the breakaways from the SWP called the International Socialist Group, which was also had a you know was also closely linked with guy Neil Davidson, who a very well known SWP theoretician, close links with Jacobin in the United States, has won the Eisenhower oh, yeah. Memorial Prize. You know, he was becoming a bit of a dissident. You know, they looked around and said, "Let us set a wider radical independence campaign in a bit like the SSA," and it attracted. Even even attracted people from solid, solidarity, Tommy Sheridan's organ, but not Tommy, not Tommy Sheridan. So it brought in people who wouldn't sit in the same room, but it brought together lots of other people yeah. from different traditions, including anarchists, Republicans. This time I have people from an Irish Republican back, no problem. Yeah. So it drew that together. We got ourselves very much involved in, in that. And there were a number of competing political forces, which actually for a at the high point was a good thing. The, the mm. initial thing was good, you know. Uh, and you know, we sometimes persuaded people of our politics. We were sort of persuaded of other people's, you know, and it translated into particular particular activities. I feel like it was a, a second lease of life for us. Uh, the, yeah. uh, it was a very it was another 
it, it was another great time of politics. I mean, I, you know, if I think go back in my life, I will think of uh, that, that the 2012, 2000, I mean, it, it led to what I've called the democratic revolution. Mm. 97% of people in Scotland registered to vote. And that included people from an EU background, 16 and 17 year olds, 97 registered to vote. 85% of people actually voted. There has never been in UK history anything like that. So yeah. Rick was a major contributor to that because Rick was the group that said, well, wait a minute, why are you know, elections, abstention rate in elections? So the Labour Party has been quite happy about abandoning huge sections of its base. These aren't even canvassed. These aren't, mm. you know, it still was winning a majority of seats. It was Rick that started organising yeah, registering people and canvassing people on the housing schemes. Yeah. Uh, and it was that was our major contribution as Rick as a whole. And to give the ISGs due, they thought of that. I would say the, the RCN's con uh, contribution was, uh, well, let's make sure you know, we, we, we emphasize the importance of republicanism, not as an ideal in the future, but look, what you're up against is the, the state, you're up against the crown powers. Mm. A Republican has to be something in the here and now. What does it mean? It means sovereignty, sovereignty of the people, as opposed to sovereignty of the Crown and Parliament. The S&P recognised the sovereignty of the Crown and Parliament, devolved institutions. That's the way it's all its way forward. And no one do that. Now, this was a minority, minority view, but quite a well-respected view. More important was we very much pushed the international from social and law. At the second great conference, we brought across, guess who? Bernadette Michalowski and yeah. others to speak at a very well attended meeting. And you know, this internationalism from below was general. And it was taken up, although we were probably the pioneers and particularly strong in taking the movement down to London, Cardiff, I spoke in Belfast mm. and in Dublin. Uh, uh, others you know, from other backgrounds were speaking in Bilbao, in, mm. uh, in, uh, you know, in Barcelona, in Athens. Even I believe in uh, Quebec City, you know. So that was, uh, and also at that time, whenever a demonstration supported Palestinians or Kurds, Rick was there and very visibly there. So mm. we, you know, don't over exaggerate the RCN thing, but certainly that Republican thing and internationalism from below were our contributions to that, and I would say are still our key elements of our politics today. Do you feel when you see the results of? the first referendum, for instance, clearly at that stage, the ground had changed so radically through the the work of groups like your own and other groups that the whole nature of Scottish politics, like in a sense, was a fundamental change. We've talked about the change across 30 or 40 years in relation to um, Catholic Scottish people and their relationship, say, to the concept of independence. But more broadly than that, it seems there's been an absolute sea change in Scottish society in relation to this in a way that would have been even inconceivable 20 odd years ago. And it seems to have a left inflection to some degree. I mean, do you feel that? Um, oh, with, without, without, a, without a doubt, without exaggerating that left inflection. Yeah. I feel like I would be a classic example of, uh, you know, of the change. I would have you know, in the 1960s, I would have considered myself British. You know, mm. Scottish and the S&P to me were associated with pretty, with backwardness. One of the very first MPs had been a member of the National Party in South Africa. Yeah. 
you know, uh, and they, they did have a councillor in Castorf in a very middle class area of Edinburgh. He was an ultra monarchist, ultra monarchist. They seemed a very right wing party. So, you know, I, I, so I was British. I then, uh, then, you know, as I became more interested in uh, devolution, the Scottish British thing became important. And that's that change was occurring in wider society. You know, as the U British Empire and the strength of the UK failed, people who are Scottish British, you can see a slide in their identity. The Scottishness becomes upgraded, the Britishness becomes downgraded to a point at which, in the, well, the key point in this, the last referendum, is the Britishness is ditched. You know, the Union Jack is now seen much as it would be seen. Yeah, well, not, not quite as it would be seen on the Falls Road, but there's elements of, there's elements of that hostility. Not, I might add, towards English flags. There have been all under one banner marches, big marches, up to 100,000 English flags are welcomed, which is an indication mm. of this internationalism from below. But that UK, and the, you know, the, the, the victory that the no camp got in 2014 was an absolute pyrrhic victory, because although they won the vote, Scottish independence became mainstreamed. When 45% of the population say, no, we don't want to be British, you've mainstreamed it. And there's nothing they can do. That, you know, they're trying all sorts of coercive things, particularly after the Brexit vote and the Brexiteers, white populists in charge, you know, all sorts of things, even to the extent that some are suggesting abolishing, abolishing the Scottish Parliament. But it's all repressive legislation, attempts to marginalise. There's no attempt to win popular support. There was mass popular support, uh, uh, you know, post-Second World War, on the you know people championing how Britain had defeated the Nazis, the mm. national health, mass public support in Scotland for that sort of uh, Britishness or even Scottish Scottish Britishness, that has disappeared. You know, and the music and everything else that has gone. Mm. You know, if, if you were to look in the cultural sphere and to examine support for independence there, I think you would find that it was. 90% to 10%. The unionists have lost the basis to create a popular unionism. It can only be a harsher and harsher one. I mean, you can see this much more extremely in events in Northern Ireland, just there. The unionists, you know, it's got to be harsh. When Arlene Foster resigns from, you know, the DUP, uh, you know, she's insufficient. Uh, left wing, uh, yeah. you, you, you know, you, you know how. But I say, yeah. unions yeah. cannot create a popular basis <laughs> for their unionism anymore. So, Scotland, having said that, yeah, initially, certainly, the interesting thing about the referendum was not only 16 to 17 years, but everybody from the EU could vote as well. It was civic nationalism. The people yeah. who joined the marches, the demonstrations, came from every background. The contingents, England for you know, Asians, Africans for independence, people from um, a, a BAME background and the Rainbow Alliance. It was a civic nationalism, which, and uh, even the leader, later leader, uh, uh, Nicholas Sturgeon said, I'm, you know, I'm not a nationalist. You know, to say that as a leader of an SB was quite, quite a statement. Mm. Even as late as 2020, the electoral legislation was changed in Scotland to so that people, anybody who had had lived in Scotland, you know, for a certain period, I think six months, might, it might be slightly longer than that, and they wanted to be Scottish, can vote very, very different from the electorate in the Brexit vote, or even in mains, the mainstream uh, 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 elections. So that was very much a contributory factor.
since Brexit, Brexit has had a bad knock-on effect, not just in the UK, but even but in Scotland as well. There are now a grouping within has broken away from the S and P. You might have heard of Alba Party, oh, yeah. uh, ex-First Minister Alex Salmond, and they are attracting people with a whole number of uh, transphobics. The first one, but actually there's other there's homophobic. Also, mm. made uh, race. One of the candidates made racist statements against mm. Romanians. Uh, you know, it's trying to even in Scotland. You know, I suppose it's a bit like not. It's not quite as extreme as what you've got where you've got to be breakaways from Sinn Fein, like Aonto, things like that. But it's you, you're getting that is now appearing in Scotland. The slide to right populism is having an effect even on our own movement. And that's going to be quite a quite intense. Uh, struggle just now, which mm. the left is going to have to take. A, I mean, some left, you know, you know, are conned into thinking, oh, some is more keen on independence. You know, yeah. he's got his ties with big business. Every bit is close. Uh, he, you know, he's a bit more of an adventurous politician, but his own record, he was courting big business, including Trump at one time mm. uh, and others. He was also somebody, when he was an M- MP, flew specifically from Aberdeen to down to London to vote to shorten abortion limits and then flew straight back again. So his Sorry. own record is, and he's, a, he's beginning to attract that. So we are now having a sort of battle within Scotland. Like you see in Ireland, even in this, in this is, as well, with the anti-Irish freedom. Although our problem is actually something that's likely to be a bigger phenomenon, given the fact he was AX, uh, and he's a He's a populist and very good debater, so he's quite skilled at that. Mm. But not, that is not a good development. But of course, behind this is it, ever since 2014, the only reason we got a referendum is not because of the, oh, how wonderful the British state is conceding the right of self-determination. Yeah. They had a look at the polls in 2012 and support for independence varied between 28 and 32%. So they said, bring it on. We'll crush the S&P once and for all. Since 2014, there's no way that the British ruling class is going to concede a referendum. And this is why the SP leadership is going nowhere. Alba's idea of a supermajority gaming the system, that will not do it either. It will need a campaign that's built on the idea, not looking to these parliamentary institutions, but the idea of uh, sovereignty of the people, you know, the Republican view, saying these, everything they do has no legitimacy. Let's build opposition on that particular basis. That's the opening for the left and for you know, one particular group and the Republican Socialist platform, which only formed in um, October, but now has 90, 90 members. That's the case. That's what we see as doing that. But we're going to have to take on a whole lot of people on the left and people in the left who have illusions in, in, in these. And that's, that's where we are, to, are today. There are people on the left who talk up how progressive your Scotland is compared with England, mm. a lot of the racist and sexist attitudes do exist. Mm. But they're not they're not given official sanction by the SFP. Alba has a possibility you know, of doing that. I mean the bitter irony is when I think back to what Ireland was like when I first went there, lots of us look to Ireland, you know, for most advanced legislation on gays, gay, gay marriages, or your gender self-determination yeah. things like that. but you are also coming on these are also being challenged within that within ireland as well so mm-hmm. in some ways we have that shared yeah, shared, shared vision 
The one thing that perhaps I don't, just as I do not think that uh, the SNP or, or Alba have a viable strategy for getting independence, hmm. I don't think the Sinn Féin road to reunification is viable either. The other day I was on a, a Zoom meeting where I was very impressed by Liam O'Rourke and his, hmm. you know, and his, and, uh, you know, if you're going to create a unity, it's going to be, have to be a cross-Irish unity from below. It's difficult to do that in economic terms. A lot of the militant SWP tradition looked at trade unions. Trade unions mm. in Ireland are even more dominated by social partnership people than they are over here. They're not, they're not going to, they're never going to lead, lead that. But they look for trade unions to be the pressure on Sinn Féin to find each other. I mean, actually, in some ways, I see the movements, one, uh, gay rights, you know, uh, 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 migrants' ability to cross borders and things is where the left should be building its internationalism from the war mm. campaign, linking unity in Ireland, independence of Scotland, and in Wales, by the way, as well. Wales yeah. is later coming on, but these were, and England, you know, we're in the interesting position at the moment, England, you know, compared with Ireland, compared with Wales, compared with Scotland, there is nothing equivalent to those demonstrations, kill the bill demonstrations in England, which have gone on to defy this, or the one after the Clapham. Now, why is that happening in England, you know, inverted commas, backward England. It's because, of course, they've got nobody to look to. Sakia Starmer, there is, after Corbyn's got, they've got to do it themselves. That's, you know, that's, they've got to do it themselves. So one of the things we would emphasise in Scotland against those people, and you've got them in Ireland as well, so you've got them politically backward, mm. other people are, uh, here, particularly in England, is no, you know, we have got to make connections with these groups and offer an international support to break up the UK state. It's, it's interesting reading your publications, how clearly you position it. And this is something that's very interesting as a, a framework for viewing it, seeing the United Kingdom in a sense as not, obviously not a starting point, but the movements for independence and republicanism within the constituent elements of the UK as interacting with one another in a really interesting way. Because, I mean, you mentioned Connolly, you mentioned what takes place inside Scotland. You've just mentioned England itself and the dearth of any move towards sort of uh, self-determination there and there's Wales and you know it's a process because you you position it back in your writings back obviously um, towards the 19th century and of course even long before that as well but to see the connections that seem to generate in the late 19th century, particularly in Ireland, Ireland is almost a testbed of an awful lot of this but that the message, the, 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 the lessons that are learned in Ireland on both sides, have an application for what is taking place in Scotland in the last three to five decades. And particularly, as you say now, the British state as a state is going to have a certain sort of response to this sort of... So I'm, I'm just interested in teasing out that a little bit, like how it doesn't seem to be a single struggle. Very, very, very much so. Uh, before we get into the, uh, you know, into the specific links in Scotland, England, Wales, and that, uh, just, just taking up my theme, looking at England, which has its own progressive tradition, Mm. The very first instance I outline in my book about a, a, an international below before it had a name was mm. the refusal of the levelers in, uh, in the levelers to go across and suppress the you know the native Irish. Cromwell wanted them to go across and suppress uh, a section of the levelers. You know, said no. Uh, these Irish clans who want the land. They've, they've got what we want. 
We refuse to go and they're shot and killed at Burford. There has never been a level of internationalism between these two islands to match that ever since. Yeah. The most advanced, I mean, in the 70s, lots and lots of groups certainly cheered on, you know, would, would cheer on the, what, the IRA, if I'm here, almost as, you know, oh, the, the, you know, they're the front line, we'll cheer them on for what they're doing. But they didn't offer really effective solidarity. The person I remember who put themselves out most was Pat Arrowsmith, who was from, you know, who, who very much was in from a CND background. And she actually went to leaflet British barracks saying, do not go and do that. An amazing thing to do. Obviously ended up in court from that. So yeah. England does have its own nutrition. But going back to the 1790s, the United Irishmen are very much at the centre of a wider alliance. It includes the United Scotsmen, the London Correspondent uh, Society, and the uh, Republican Democrats in the United States. These, these are closely, closely aligned. It's a very definite internationalism from below alliance. And they're certainly highly conscious of those, those links they make. They make these links again in, in the United States. The next one, which is, which I've, I mean, I've, that, all of these are in that, my, book, my book from ex-Brit to post-Brit. But mm. I, if you like, I've also written the uh, uh, first book this is here, uh, which is from David to Conley. And this goes in a lot more detail. And, you know, it's probably through this I first became more historically aware of international than below. Mm. I mean, interestingly, you know, although I, was in, I went to Aberdeen University and became involved in the left from 1968, uh, from Edinburgh, it really wasn't until 1971, 72, that I was aware that Conley came from my home city. Yeah. You know, I read Desmond Greaves' book, you know, and uh, <laughs> people in Ireland, anything you wrote about that, well, you know, everybody, oh, did, did know anything. Connie came from my head, you know, this, this, and he cultivated that myth himself in Ireland, you know. Right. Uh, so it wasn't until then I realised that link. So then I became very highly interested and started a very close friend, Ray Burnett, who is from the, uh, you know, the Catholic community in, in, in Edinburgh, but actually from the, originally from the northeast Scotland, Calumet, had obviously a school at Swans Irish. He made me very aware of that. He had gone across he, in 1969, it was him who brought Bernadette McCallisky across to the university. He had gone across to join the barricades, make petrol bombs and things like that. Mm. He, he, uh, made, he actually made me aware. He's written a lot of stuff about Edinburgh's links and actually claimed Edinburgh's actually got a more radical tradition in Glasgow. Uh, uh, <laughs> when I go to Glasgow, Glasgow meetings, I often say I come from the, <laughs> I come from the city, but these, these islands most radical revolutionary. James Conley, they like to claim <laughs> John McClane. Uh, but um, the, the David, da Michael David, the Land League was utterly fundamental. You know, the Land League, obviously, as well as putting new life into the, you know, the, the Irish, the, the Irish National Party, uh, but also led to the Highland Land League, which created a party called the Crofters Party. The Crofters Party was the first party that said, we are going to take on Liberals and Labour. Nobody thought you could do that. There was a left wing Liberal Party called the Radicals, but like the left and the Labour Party, they thought you couldn't break from it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Today, but the Crofters Party decided they would do that. They would try and stand. They stood in six, six Highland seats. They won four of those seats. One of those seats uh, was, uh, I forgot the guy's name, but it was won by somebody 
and Keith Ness, who had been in the first international. Another one had been an Irish nationalist MP, originally from a Scottish background, but from a Catholic in Kilkenny. Uh, but he stepped down and stood in Argyll. Now, Argyll is far from being Catholic. He won that seat despite his Catholic background. That is mind-boggling, not just defeating Labour and Tory, but actually having a Catholic take out these people in, in Argyll. Yeah. So it also led to the inspiration, what? We can do that. Let's form the Scottish Labour Party. This was pre pre the independent Labour Party. Let's mm. form the Scottish Labour Party. Keir Hardy and others. Michael Davitt was right behind that. You know, uh, and they formed that Labour. And you know, uh, Home Rule for Ireland, Home Rule for Scotland were part and parcel of its platform. Obviously, land reform were part of that. It also had a knock-on effect in Wales. The first meeting that a certain Lloyd George spoke at was a you know, was a was a, a pro-land meeting held in, in, North, in North Wales, you know, that's where he began to latch on. Obviously, much changed individual later politically. Yeah. These links were, and they've been continuous ever since. The next spark came in the, the what I call the 1916-23 International Revolution. The 1916 rising triggered off, you know, a wider support. The person who really made the link in 1919 to 1921, John McLean, who was in the British Socialist Party, followed the British road to socialism, very principled during the First World War, and he was anti-war campaigning, leading to him getting a three-year jail sentence. But he remained a British. He In jail, he met Republicans. He became a bit more aware of that. He also met conscientious objectors. He became a bit more aware of that. But to begin with, you know, he saw these as potential allies. But by 1921, he said, wait a minute, you know, uh, Connolly's breakup of the UK and British Empire wrote to socialism. That's relevant in Scotland too. And he spent the last part of his life, the part of the, life the British left, right off, you know, very much campaigning that, along with Harry McShane forming the Tramps Cross, taking Ireland, Scotland's disgrace as a pamphlet round, going up to the, the Outer Isles, the Crofting Isles, they're campaigning, but also taking on the infant uh, Communist Party of Great Britain. Uh, and he's seen as marginal. He was far from marginal, you know, at that time. Challenged them because they were trying to, to say, well, let's link up with the Labour Party. They wanted to link up with the left of the Labour Party, a bit like, say, looks like militantly yes, we wanted to link up with the Cormanites, but mm. they, they said, no, the Labour Party is still dominated by the pro-war majority. There's no way should, we should be trying to win individual people from the left of the Labour Party across to a new Say a, a, a new communist party, but not giving a carte blanche because mm. you know, the CPGB, in order to uh, try to make closer links, had to accept it was run by the right, had to encourage people to vote for right wing candidates. Uh, whereas when, uh, for example, McLean was standing in the election against uh, in 1922, I think it was the candidate, the, the other candidate was a, was a, a left candidate who, who McLean called right up, says, If you can't vote for me, vote for him. He certainly wouldn't have said that when he's standing in the first election against Barnes, who was a very, you know, was a, a, right, a very right-wing coalition Labour person. Mm. And McLean was important, but right to the end, he saw Ireland as absolutely central. He had a, he always had a mind, but he, he was invited across to speak in Dublin in 1919. He had just gone through experience of the 40-hour strike, which had been in Glasgow and in Belfast too. Uh, and, you know, the, in the end, the tanks in George Square, 
men, the leadership backed down. They got they, they got a 44 hour day, uh, courtesy of the trade union officials. Uh, but they, from then on, the possibility of rank and file independent challenges had were, were disappeared over that year. It took a year or so to realize it. When McLean spoke in Dublin, um, invited across by the Socialist Party of Ireland, uh, he you know. He 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 you know he he made an appeal. He said, "Oh, you know, you should approach the British troops and try and woo them across." Yeah. And he also talked about uh, you know uh, Britain being the mainland. You know, so he was very well received. But both of these things, he you know, in one case he was laughed out, in the other case he was quietly taken aside, and he began to realise I've got a view. The relationship to these yeah. islands in a different fashion. Also, he he just was there after the Limerick Soviet. You know, the forty-hour strike had been beaten back by introduction of tanks, and that whereas the Limerick Soviet, you know, the introduction of British troops and things like that did not make this climb down. You know, they start printing their own money, started running the time. Actually, it was, in, it was actually the internal uh, Irish nationalists and the, the Catholic Church that had to close that down. So Connolly realised that actually there could be political issues, democratic issues that mobilise and give greater heart to people than narrow economic ones. He learned that, I think, in the aftermath of the Limerick thing when he spoke to them. And from then on, he was a constant friend of well, Constant Markiewicz, who spoke at his meetings you know, I spoke with him on Glasgow Green, 100,000 meetings, but right to the end in his election meetings, she, along with Sylvia Pankhurst, who had all who joined the CPTP and then left, were mm. there speaking right to the end. At his funeral, you know, having been told he was marginal, mentally disturbed, his funeral was the biggest funeral you know, in, 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 in Glasgow. So he was the next key link. And if you like, the RCN, you know, most other organisations look to see what, you know, do they come from a Leninist, a Trotskyist tradition? And nearly everyone you come across claims to come and uh, come up. We don't. Mm. You know, we come across from, if we're looking at that, we don't, we don't put the claim and Connolly up on a pedestal or like some do Lenin or we say, you know, their understanding is far deeper. Their contribution was, you know, internationalism below, the need for independent working class self-organisation, self-education. That is something that we have to transform to meet today's uh, circumstances. And we once again, this time bringing in Wales as well, want in England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland alliance, you know, international law. That's what we see as important. I call myself a, you know, a, a, a communist. And by that, it does not it may very much, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, to each according to the needs, you know, or meet you according to their ability and uh, mm. the idea as well. You know, basically, it's a global commune. I, I mm. do not come from the official communist or even dissident communist tradition. Mm. But the or I haven't discussed the RC and the R, the and the Republican Social. You know, I've talked about the sovereignty of the people being the democratic, and we should invoke. But wait, wait a minute, how does that go the stage further and open up the road to communism? I actually very much see we you know people demand that trade unions do this that none of these institutions are under workers control mm. um, my then the, the, the distinctive thing that makes me a republican communist or open sources that says you know we are for the sovereignty of the work members in their workplaces or the sovereignty you know, or in the communities 
That means the first thing is we have to win back control of our own organizations. Trade unions, anybody is an, an, is an office bearer, has to be elected and recallable and on the average pay of the members they represent. You know? And your aim isn't to ameliorate your position within capitalism, it actually is the abolition of wage slavery. Now that's not done as a propaganda thing, which are, you know, there are small groups that have that position. We want to do that. So actually fighting for wage improvements, better conditions against cuts, these are schools of struggle for the same. In the same way as fighting for democracy is a school of struggle. You know, that's why we have intermediate demands like a republic that. But if you, it's not until we control our own organizations. When you got to that stage, you're actually more or less on the verge of dual power. If you control your own organizations, you can redefine the other side. That's the extra step I see as being from a, a social Republican to becoming a socialist Republican or a communist Republican. So that's the distinctive position we have with that. But, but I say most of our immediate work is putting emphasis on the build, building of this Republican yeah, if you like, uh, co coalition around the uh, sovereignty of the people. But yeah. to be a communist, we go one stage further. Yeah. Listen, thanks a million. It's been great. It's been really interesting. And, uh... well, I really enjoyed that, so thanks very much. No, thank no, thanks you. Really. It's been fantastic.